Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. Amen. Praise the Lord for the truth that we can sing together on mornings like this. Well, I'm excited that this morning we're going to be jumping into the book of Hebrews uh, together. So we're going to take a long journey uh, through this glorious book uh, in the New Testament. do want to make everyone aware that there are scripture journals available in the back. We should have plenty of those. If you want one of those, those Journals have the text of the book of Hebrews with blank pages in between. So if you want one of those to use to take notes during the sermon time, or if you want one to take home with you to use uh, for your uh, devotional or quiet time in the mornings to reflect on uh, the book of Hebrews in your own time, they are useful for something like that as well. So there are plenty back there. You can grab one now. You can grab one um, on your uh, way out this morning. Well, this morning we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 1. Looking at verses 1 through 4 together. So let me read our passage for us, and then we will pray and ask for the Lord's help as we begin uh, this book together. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let's pray together. Father, every week we just want to speak to our gratitude for the truth of your word, for how you have revealed yourself to us. Father, if not for the fact that you, have, that you, that you are a God who speaks, we would be left in darkness to ourselves. But because of the truth of your word, we know what you have accomplished for us. We know how you have sent Christ to live and to die in our place and how he victoriously rose from the grave and how your spirit has come and dwells within all who fix their eyes on Christ and trust in him for their salvation. And so we are so thankful that your spirit is here with us even right now this morning within us at work on our hearts, at work on our minds to the truth of your word. And so, Father, we pray that, that you would accomplish what only you can. We, I know we say that so often. I say that so often as we gather on Sunday mornings, Father. But, but we desperately need you to be at work within us. And, Father, I pray that the, the message of Hebrews over these coming months would, would, would rest in, in a heavy, weighty way upon us, that it would challenge us, that it would bring conviction to us, that you would use it to draw us toward you, to elevate our understanding of what the church means and how we need to hold one another accountable and walk beside one another and encourage one another in our walk with you. 
Father, I pray that you would use this book to sustain our faith, to, to keep us firm and steadfast as your children for all eternity. And so, Father, we are looking forward to what you, you are going to accomplish among us as we trust you as you have spoken in your word. So, Father, I pray for your guidance this morning. I pray that you would allow me to speak only what is true of you, only what is true of your word, and that you would get all the glory and that your people would be helped. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think we all feel the difficulties of navigating our current world and how difficult it is to wade through all the competing voices that are constantly and continually crying out for our attention. I mean, the, the modern world in which we live, there are literally thousands upon thousands. I say that without exaggeration. There are thousands upon thousands of people and companies and organizations, websites shouting at you, manipulating you, vying for your attention because in our modern economy, your attention is magically transformed into their wealth, right? So, so they want your attention. They, they're doing everything they can to grab your attention. And it's not just the internet that's begging for your attention. There are thousands upon thousands of books published every year. It's hard to get an exact number, but estimates are possibly at least a thousand books published every day in our country. And I don't mean copies of books. I mean individual new titles, books published every single day, just in our country, and even more all around the world. There are thousands of news articles and videos posted to news sites every day. Just listen to these stats I found from 2016. So these are, these are archaic, right, in terms of the internet, all right? So but these are the stats from 2016. The Washington Post puts out over 500 different articles and videos every day. The New York Times at that time, 230 articles and videos every single day. The Wall Street Journal, 240 articles and videos every single day. So just among those three publications, they publish almost a thousand different forms of media each day. That's to say nothing of all the other networks, CNN, Fox News, and on and on and on. Podcasts have become really popular. There are there are 850,000 active podcasts right now. 850,000, and they produce 48 million episodes. And listen to this. I think I've mentioned this in a sermon before, but it blows my mind away every time I see it. Every minute of every day, 500 hours of video is uploaded to YouTube. So every minute you watch YouTube, you fall 500 hours behind watching YouTube, right? It's staggering. It's a staggering number to think about. And of course, all of those stats is to say nothing of Netflix and Disney Plus and Amazon Prime and all the other streaming services. And we haven't even gotten into social media and the thousands of updates posted by individuals every single moment of every day on Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and on and on and on. It's exhausting to think about. 
And it's causing all kinds of mental health issues from anxiety to depression. And we weren't made to have this many people tugging at us for our attention, trying to get our eyes on them and our ears fixed to what they're saying to us. And everything they're doing is bent toward getting us to listen to them and to look to them. And we're pressed with all these different options. And in the end, who do we listen to? I mean, you only have so many hours in each day of your life. Who do you give your attention to? Who do you listen to? And what I'm here to tell you this morning is Hebrews has a simple, straightforward, eternal, trustworthy answer to that question. And the answer is, we can trust and listen to Jesus Christ. He is the better truth. He is the superior one. He is the one who is worthy of our attention. He is the one who is worthy to be heard. Jesus Christ the eternal Son of God, our great high priest, the heir of all things, the one through whom the world was created, the one who is the radiance of the glory of God, the one who upholds and carries along the universe to its intended end. He is the one who is worthy of our attention and he is superior to all that have come before, to all that exists now, and to all that will come in the future. We are to listen to him. Our eyes, our hearts, our minds, our ears are to be fixed on Jesus Christ. He is the one who is worthy of our attention. Ultimately, that is the big picture theme of the book of Hebrews. That's what is going to become clear, Lord willing, to us as we move through Hebrews, is that Jesus Christ is the one who is worth listening to. He's the one who is worthy of us heeding what he has said, what he has revealed. And if you've ever studied Hebrews before, if you have any familiarity with it, you know that one of the themes, one of the author of Hebrews' favorite words to use is the word better or greater or superior. It is throughout this book. And you can see it already in verse 4, right? It says that he has become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. He is better than the angels. But, but we'll, we'll see it throughout. So just let me do a quick run through of the other play, the kinds of places we're going to see it. Chapter 6, verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things things that belong to salvation, or chapter 7, verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. It is a better hope. 722, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Or chapter 8, verse 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that, that is as much more excellent then the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Jesus' covenant is better. His promises are better. Chapter 9, verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the, he but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. The heavenly things needed to be cleansed with a better sacrifice. Chapter 10, verse 34, for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. 
or chapter 11, verses 39 and 40. And all these things, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And then finally, chapter 12, verse 24. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. In other words, when Jesus arrived, he brought with him through his life, his death, and his resurrection, that which is better than what came before. And as a result, Hebrews, this, this book, this, what some people would even call a sermon, is filled with both glorious promises connected to what he has said and the fact that he has arrived and, and what we obtain if we listen to him and pay attention to him. But at the very same time, because he has arrived and he is better and he is superior, there are also sobering warnings for those who ignore him, for those who turn away from him, for those who don't listen to him. You see, for the author of Hebrews, I love the way one commentator put it. He talked about how the, the book of Hebrews is a book of movement. Jesus has arrived, and you are either moving toward him, or you are moving away from him. And the book of Hebrews is, uses that language over and over and over again. And so I'm going to do another run-through, and you can flip with me in your Bible if you want to, but, but I just want us to hear how the, these great promises, but yet also these great warnings are filling, are, fill up the book of Hebrews because, because Jesus has arrived, and he is superior, and we must listen to him. That's, that's the message. And so, for example, we can see it already in chapter 2, verses 1 and 3. He's concluding his argument here that he makes in chapter 1, and then this is what he says in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, because Christ has arrived, because Christ is better, because God has spoken through his Son, therefore, chapter 2, verse 1, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Do you hear that? We must pay, we must pay much closer attention unless we drift away, unless we move away. Or we see it in chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. Take care, brothers. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And so what you hear there in that verse is the other theme of Hebrews, that if we're going to do this, if we're going to listen closely to Jesus, if we're going to make it to the end and not fall away from him and not drift away from him, as, as Hebrews says, then we're going to need each other. Which is why we, I've titled this series through Hebrews, Exalting Christ by Enduring Together. We're in this together, and Hebrews is crystal clear about that reality. Or chapter 4, verse 11. 
Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. We are striving. We are moving toward the rest that God has provided us so that we don't fall. Chapter 4, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Or chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Listen to this one. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Or we could even look at chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, one of the more well-known passages in Hebrews. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see that there's movement. We are to run, right? To run toward Jesus, to endure together in this movement toward Christ. Or verse 15 of chapter 12. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. You see again there, our corporate responsibility to one another. That's a command, brothers and sisters. We are to see to it that none of us together fail to obtain to move toward the grace of God. It's a weighty responsibility that God has given us for each other. And then finally, chapter 13, verses 7 through 9 says this, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. So again, don't be led away by these diverse and strange teachings. So you see, there's a, there's a weightiness to the book of Hebrews that it is saying to us, Jesus has come, 
God has spoken through him. He is the better and superior revelation of God. Therefore, there is a weight attached to what we do with that revelation from God. We must listen to him. We must pay much, close, uh, much closer attention to him. And so that's, that's why Hebrews gives such weighty language, such stark warnings, because Jesus has arrived. Therefore, our outline for this morning is simple. I want to ask and answer two simple questions. How did God speak to people after Je- uh, sorry, how did God speak to people before Jesus? How did God speak to people before Jesus? And what changed when Jesus arrived? How did God speak to people before Jesus and what changed when Jesus arrived? So how is it that God spoke to people before Jesus? Well, you see there, right there in the beginning, chapter 1, verse 1, long ago and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Now, right here at the top, you notice something that's unique in uh, what we typically would call the letters of the New Testament, especially as we've been in uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Those who write letters almost always immediately identify themselves, right? The first line of almost every book of at least Paul's letters, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ. And some version of that is he follows, letting us know that he's the one who wrote the book. But we don't have that for Hebrews. Ultimately, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Some have historically conjectured that it was, that it was Paul. It, though I've leaned that way at times, it seems unlikely that that's who it was. There are other guesses about who it might be. It could have been Apollos. It could have been Barnabas. But ultimately, we don't know. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on trying to figure that out because God didn't think we needed to know. Furthermore, as I've reflected more and more on this over the past few days, I have to wonder if it wasn't intentional because if you're talking about the greater superior revelation that has come through Jesus Christ, that he is the one through whom God speaks, I could see why the author may not have wanted to put his name on the book because it's not about him. It's about Jesus. So this is a unique book compared to the other letters. We don't know who wrote it. We don't know specifically the audience to whom it was written. But we know without a doubt what it was written about. And that is the glorious reality of Jesus Christ. So right here in verse 1, the author tells us how God spoke to people before Jesus. And he says, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Now there are In that one short verse, there are five descriptive phrases, right? I know we just read it, but but here they are. Here's the five descriptive phrases. It was long ago. It was in many, uh, at many times. Number two, number three, in many ways. Number four, to our fathers. Number five, by the prophets. So we can get caught up in all that description. We can get into the details of those descriptive phrases and terms, but I don't want us to miss the main objective of the sentence, which is this, God spoke. God spoke. We often take that for granted, but that in and of itself is a miraculous thing 
that God himself, the eternal, sovereign, omnipotent, created God, chose to speak to his creation. He did not have to. He freely chose to. God has spoken, and therefore, because he chose to speak, we have access to the mind of God. We, we can learn about his character, who he is, his nature, his thoughts, what he thinks about the world, his intended end for the world, his plans for the world, the ways in which he brings those things about, what he expects from us, what he has provided for us, promises that he has made to us. We have not been left in darkness, friends. God spoke. So I, I don't want us to read verse 1 as somehow demeaning what God did long ago. That's not the objective. It's not to demean it or to somehow say that when God spoke long ago, that's somehow, that's somehow less important or has less relevance. Those words should not be neglected or ignored. The Old Testament is valuable. We need to read it. We need to study it. We need to make it a part of our lives. Why? Because it contains God's word. He spoke. And when God speaks, we need to do what? Listen. You and I have an opportunity every, in this country, because pretty much everybody has a Bible in their house. And if they don't have one, they can fairly easily gain access to one. You and I have the opportunity every day of our lives to hear directly from the mouth of God. Because he has spoken and we hold his word in our hands. So what is it that the author is telling us about God speaking in verse 1? Well, first he says it was, it was long ago. So he's referring to a time that was long ago. So just as a reminder, the, the time before Jesus came... Uh, it's what's known as the intertestamental. So between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was about 400 years. It's commonly known as the 400 years of silence. And so there were at least 400 years between the last words from the last prophet of the Old Testament and when Jesus arrived on the scene. And, and we have the words of John the Baptist and God speaking through him and God speaking to Simeon and God speaking to Elizabeth and God speaking to Mary and all the, the, the shepherds and all this speaking that happened. But there was this silence. But before that silence, right, that long ago, at least, at least 400 years, but thousands of years in history before the birth of Christ, God spoke all the time, right? That's what he's saying. It was, it was in many, at many times and in many ways, God was speaking to his people over thousands and thousands of years, right? It only takes a, a casual read through the Old Testament to see that God was continually speaking to his people. You turn to Genesis chapter 1, and you can't get past verse 3 without God already speaking, because he spoke the universe into existence. And then he creates uh, Adam and Eve. He creates man and woman. And after he created them, he speaks to them. And he commands them to be fruitful and to multiply. And he, he commands Adam and he says, look, you can eat from any tree of the garden except that one, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You, you can't eat from that one. And so God is speaking to Adam. He is giving him instruction. And of course, as you all know, the fall of mankind was a direct result of what? Not listening to God speak. Not listening and heeding the very words that he spoke directly to Adam. 
And then later he speaks to Cain and Abel about their offering being acceptable. And when Cain kills Abel out of jealousy, he speaks curses to Cain for killing his brother. He speaks to Noah about the coming flood and warns him and instructs him in detail about the ark that he needs to build and what he's to do and how many animals he is to take in. And at this point, we're only six chapters into the Bible. Right? God is a God who spoke at many times and in many ways. He speaks to Abraham directly. He speaks to Abraham through angels. He speaks to Moses through a burning bush. He speaks to the Egyptians through the plagues. He speaks and directs Israel through a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. He spoke to Israel from a quaking mountain. He, he shouted from the, the, the storm cloud that covered the mountain as the mountain quaked. And he spoke to his people on Mount Sinai. He spoke to the stone tablets that Moses brought down containing the ten words or the Ten Commandments. And we could go on and on. He speaks to kings and to pharaohs through dreams and visions and to prophets through dreams and visions. Sometimes it even happened through physical writing on a wall. He spoke to Samuel by just whispering his name in the middle of the night. Samuel. And of course, the Bible itself tells us that God has spoken through his creation, that his handiworks declare his glories if we have eyes to see it. And he spoke through the prophets whose words we have in our Bibles in the Old Testament, chapters upon chapters upon chapters of God speaking through his prophets to his people, giving them both warnings and promises. You see, no one can claim that God has given you the silent treatment. God has not given us the silent treatment. He has spoken many times and in many ways. It is astonishing to reflect on. And so when the author, by the way, says that he spoke uh, to the fathers by the prophets, most people don't think, and I don't either, think that he's referring to the official office of prophet, but just to say that he spoke through people throughout the Old Testament, throughout these thousands of years that preceded Christ, God was speaking in all kinds of ways through people to our fathers. And notice that God's audience was people. Right? God wasn't having some conversation among the divine. He wasn't talking to angels. He was talking to us. It's not a conversation that we hear from a distance. It is spoken to us. Right? Don't take that for granted. God speaks to our fathers. He now speaks to us. It is, it is conversation. It is, it is directed to us. Now, as glorious as that is, the author of Hebrews is setting up this contrast for us. Yes, God spoke it's amazing that he spoke. And he spoke, it's amazing that he spoke directly to us through the prophets, to our fathers, through the prophets. And he spoke in a multitude of ways, through a multitude of people, time and time and time again. But, but as we reflect on that, and as you read the Old Testament, as you think about that for a moment, you realize that, that speaking was always fragmentary. It was a little bit here. It was a little bit there. It was a little more information there. A little bit more through the next prophet. If you put that poem next to this prophecy, you begin to see some clarity. And it was never this full, complete revelation of who God was and, and what he was intending to accomplish. 
progressively more and more was revealed about God. And the, the more he spoke, the more we were able to learn. But it was, it was never complete. We were always left, the God's people, the fathers were always left wanting more, right? There was something more to be said, something more to figure out, something more to understand. But that all changed when Jesus arrived. And that's the contrast that the author of Hebrews is setting up here. Look at verses 2 through 4 with me. You see that first word of verse 2. It's that really important small word that we find in many places in our Bibles that shows this dramatic contrast that's coming, right? Here's what God did long ago at many times and in many ways, but now in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. This is something different. This is in contrast to how he spoke before. Now he is speaking by his son. It is different than what came before it. Do you see the contrast there? Before it was in many times and in many ways. But verse 2 says nothing about many times and many ways. In other words... The arrival of Jesus is not one person in a long line of other people. It's not just another way that God has spoken. It's not one of the many times. It's not one of the many ways. It is altogether different. Jesus Christ has arrived. And it's no longer by means of prophets. It's no longer through all the other ways that God spoke. No, it is now by his Son. And there's a phrase there in verse 2 that might throw some of us off. Right, it says that in these last days. Now when we read that phrase, we often think, in our minds, we think end times, right? Future, in these, the last days are coming. They're not here yet, the last days are coming. But verse 2 says, in these last days he has spoken. He's already done it. So, so what, what's going on here? Well, here's, here's what we need to understand. If we, if we read the New Testament correctly in phrases like this, words like this, the reality is that you and I right now, this very moment, are living in the last days. When Jesus came, when Jesus showed up, we started the last days. We started the beginning of the end. So right now, it is absolutely biblically accurate to say that right now we are living in the last days. I'm not saying that because there's some kind of prophecy, I think, that's happening because of the war in Ukraine and Russia's the, the beast from Revelation. I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying that when Jesus came, the last day started. We are right now in the last days. The author of Hebrews, when he was writing this a little under 2,000 years ago, he was in the last days. And it's in these last days that God has spoken to us by his son. The coming of Jesus was such a monumental, earth-shattering event that it marked the beginning of the end. And even though God continually communicated in days long ago, he never fully revealed himself. But that all changed when Jesus showed up and he has now spoken in his son. Which is why the rest of verse 2 through verse 4 just spills out about the glory of this son who has arrived. It is astonishing to read what the author of Hebrews has to say here in just these few verses about this son through whom God now speaks. That he is in an entirely other category than anyone else who has come before him. 
You see there in verse 2, this son is the one who is appointed the heir of all things. In other words, the entire universe, right? Every single atom in the universe belongs to Jesus. Every star, every galaxy, every nebula, it's all his. He's going to inherit all of it. It all belongs to him to say nothing of every bar of gold on the planet earth. It's all his. It's his. It's his inheritance. The entire creation belongs to him. He is the heir of all things. That's what all things means. It means every Every single thing that has ever existed and every and, and ever will exist. It all belongs to Jesus. And it exists, this universe, this creation, it exists for the glory of his name. This is the one through whom God has now spoken. And not only is that the destiny of the universe that it belongs to him, he also tells us there in verse 2 that he was there when it was created, that it was through him that the world was created. Through Jesus Christ, the world was created. He is the eternal one. He, is, uh, he has no beginning. He was there when the world was spoken into existence because it was done through Jesus Christ himself. Or as Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 tells us, all things were created through him and for him. That everything in the universe exists for the glory of Jesus Christ. It all belongs to him. And it was all created through him. Now that in and of itself, right? We could put a period right there. That should be enough to convince us. We need to listen to Jesus. Right? It, the, the, he's going to inherit it all. He created it all. It all exists for his glory. But the author isn't done yet. Look at verse 3. He, meaning Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus shines forth with the full glory of God himself. It emanates from him. And it also says that he is the exact imprint of his nature. This is exactly what Jesus said to Philip in John chapter 14, verses 8 and 9. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Now, get your mind around this for a moment. This is out on some dirt path in Israel. Jesus probably has dirty feet and a scraggly beard. And Philip says, show us the Father. And in John 14, 9, Jesus responds and says, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? That is astonishing to think about. He's rebuking Philip because he's saying, you've already seen him. You've been with me. I'm the exact imprint of his nature. When you look at me, you're looking at the Father. And just earlier in that very same chapter, uh, uh, chapter 14, verse 6 of John, is when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And that's because the disciples had also early asked him, how can we know the way? So here, here's two really important questions in John 14. The disciples say, how can we know the way? Jesus says, you're looking at him. And then they say, how can we know the Father? And Jesus says, you're looking at him. 
He is the exact imprint of his nature. He is the way to the Father because just by looking at him, we can see the Father. And then finally, at the end of, uh, well, sorry, in the middle of verse three, he also tells us that Jesus is the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. That every moment of every day, Jesus Christ himself is holding the entire universe together. And what the Bible means by that is that even right now, this very moment, the fact that you and I are, that you're sitting here, that I'm standing here, that the chairs you're sitting on are not just disappearing, that your heart is beating, that, that your body is working, that you're listening, that you're awake and aware, all that reality is because Jesus Christ right now, this very moment, is consciously holding together the atoms of your body and the atoms of your chair and the atoms of this building He holds it together by the word of his power. And in fact, this word hold together is not just this static sense of hold together. It also has the sense of to carry along. And, and I love that picture because the sense is that it's not just that, that Jesus is straining and holding the universe together just to keep it together for this very moment that he is also moving it toward its intended end. That Jesus Christ is the sovereign king over history. He's the sovereign king over this universe. And he is moving it toward its intended end, which is to bring all glory and honor to his name. You see, the heir of all things in the universe, through whom God created the world, the very radiance of his glory, the very imprint of his nature, the one who holds this world together and is moving it toward its intended end is also the one who laid down his life on the cross for sinners like you and me. That's what that last sentence of verse three is speaking to, that after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He made purification for sins by laying down his life on the cross, by, by absorbing the wrath that you and I deserve, right? Jesus Christ, the righteous judge of the universe, became the one to take judgment on himself so that you and I would not have to face that judgment. He made purification for sin. He cleansed all who will trust in him and have faith in him. And so I plead with you, as the book of Hebrews is pleading with you this morning, to turn to Christ in faith that your sins may be washed away. But here's the glorious reality there, the second half of that sentence that he made purification for sins, but after he did that, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high because Jesus is the last word about your sin. Right? It is through Jesus that God has spoken. He is the last word from God and he is the last word on your sin. He sat down because he was finished. There is nothing left to be done about your sin. Jesus has taken care of it for all who will trust in him and look to him for their salvation. You see, here's the glorious reality that we see in these first verses. You and I don't have to wait for something better to come along. We're not waiting for God to tell us something more. We're not longing for the day when something more glorious will show up. How much more glorious can you get than this, right? The one who created all things for whom the entire universe exists, who holds the whole universe together by the word of his power, that Jesus willingly laid down his life for you 
And we can look at him and we can see the Father. He has fully revealed the Father to us because when we see Jesus, we see the Father. What more could we ask for? That is the message of the rest of the book of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews wants to convince you of what we just said this morning. And we're going to spend the next months allowing God through this book to show us this glorious reality. And that we therefore, as chapter 2 verse 1 tells us, we therefore must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. It is the message of Hebrews from the beginning to the end, because as we get to chapter 12, verse 25, the author says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they, meaning the fathers long ago who were spoken to, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. You see, this is the theme of the book of Hebrews. The Son has arrived, and that changes everything. The promises of looking to him and listening to him are glorious and they are manifold, but the warnings and dangers of ignoring him are horrific. And that is the weight that the book of Hebrews is going to rest upon us. Therefore, therefore, because of this glorious reality that we've been meditating on and reflecting on, we're being called this morning, church, to love one another well. And to see to it that we hold each other accountable to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Because he is worthy of our attention and our worship and our gaze. Because he is superior to angels and to everyone else that has come before him or will ever come after him. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful that you are a God who speaks, that you have spoken. And Father, we know that you have fully spoken to us in your Son, in Jesus Christ. And so, Father, by the power of your Spirit, I pray that you would help us to fix our hearts and our minds on things above where Christ is. I pray that you would make us students of your word, that we would see Christ as he is pointed to in the Old Testament scriptures, the great and glorious promises that, 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 that tell us who Jesus was going to be. And then the great and glorious revelation of who he is, that he is the very one that we were waiting for when he arrives in the Gospels. And I pray that you would make us all individually students of your word so that we can help one another keep our eyes on Jesus. Jesus, you are worthy of all of uh, all the glory. You're worthy of all the praise and worship we could ever give you. It is such a privilege to be able to gather together and to worship you the full and final complete revelation from God. And so, Father, even now as we sing together, I pray that we would fix our eyes on Christ. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.